0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Hello. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. This from Goop.com. Probiotics are shown to alleviate anxiety. Our stomach is a fascinating place. With all the advancements being made in neuroscience, the complexities of digestion have not been well understood. The dark matter of our body's galaxy. That's changing quickly. Part of the challenge is complexity. There are 100,000 times more microbes in your gut than humans on this planet, writes Emmerin Mayer in The Mind-Gut Connection. There are also more immune cells inside of our stomachs than in blood and bone marrow, which makes what we put into our mouths so important. Our diets might affect our brains more than the other way around. As Mayer puts it, Your gut microbes are in a prime position to influence your emotions by generating and modulating signals the gut sends back to the brain. Humans are collectively experiencing increased rates of anxiety, which is now the planet's most pervasive psychological disorder. Increased stress has numerous destructive tendencies in our guts, including the alteration of contractions, transit rates between our stomach and large intestines, and blood flow. When that blood is transporting extra cortisol due to an increase in our corticotropin releasing factor, also known as CRF, the result is increased storage of visceral fat, decreased function of our immune system, and, of course, anxiety. While there are a number of means for altering your gut environment, a healthier diet with less sugar, stress-reducing techniques like meditation, regular exercise, therapy... One of the most prominent is the intake of probiotics, as new research published in Neuropsychiatry in London shows. Our guts are filled with microbes. I remember my high school biology teacher trying to gross us out by informing us that if she were to zap us so that only living microorganisms would remain, a few pounds would end up next to each of our desks. turns out these critters are necessary for survival, and how we treat them affects how they treat us. Probiotics are, in the words of the World Health Organization, live microorganisms which, when administered in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit on the host. In 2010, the organization began developing guidelines for probiotics in food, which is tricky for a number of reasons. First off, each host has a different gut environment. What works for you might not work for me. And second, dosage amounts are also relative for each host. Constructing widespread guidelines on what needs to be individualized prescriptions is challenging. Thirdly, the FDA is notoriously inefficient when screening health claims. There's a world of difference between refrigerated and room temperature probiotics, one that extends well beyond price, yet this barely regulated industry is difficult to navigate. Stated benefits exceed actual benefits, as often happens with medicine masquerading as nutritional supplements. The research team above, led by Ruxu Huang, sorry if I totally pronounced that wrong, at the Xingya School of Public Health in Hunan, China, researched seven academic databases, Researched seven academic ba- databases and chose 10 studies that showed probiotics efficacy in reducing anxiety. Importantly, the team recognizes a crosstalk between gut and brain. The gut-brain relationship is bi-directional, meaning that changes in micro, um, m- microbial flora can affect behavior, and behavioral changes can affect the gut flora. The team had been searching for a meta-analysis on probiotics and anxiety disorders which they were unable to find. Their requirements included studies on human subjects with anxiety disorders, a variety of probiotic sources, fermented yogurt, powders, oil suspensions and capsules, and studies from unique test groups to avoid overlap. They did not include studies on mice and rats, case reports, or incomplete data. Wang's team collected research from Japan, Spain, Ireland, Iran, the UK, Sweden, France, and Canada, all of which showed beneficial effects from a variety of probiotics, including popular and readily available strains such as lactobacillus acidophilus and lactobacillus casei. A total of 660 human subjects were included in their final results. Meta-analysis results indicated that probiotics significantly decreased anxiety compared to controls. These results are consistent with some previous studies showing that probiotics and anxiety on anxiety are effective. As Meyer concludes in his book, however, there is no one-size-fits-all recommendation for probiotics. He continues, We cannot expect that any simple intervention by itself, such as a particular diet, will optimize your gut microbiome while not paying attention to all the other factors that influence gut microbial function, like the influence of unhealthy gut reactions associated with stress, anger, and anxiety at the same time. So while probiotics might not cure your anxiety in one shot, they can play an important role in the process. Understanding strains and dosage is an exciting field of research that is certain to yield critical advancements in the near future. Now from smittenkitchen.com, we're going to have a recipe and a story about baked rigatoni with tiny meatballs. Did you hear a resounding whine, sigh, moan, the volume of the entire eastern seaboard? Because there's a fresh foot of snow outside for the 200th time this year, and friends, I love snow. I get so excited when it's going to snow. But this lacks charm, likely because the first day of this anticipated four-day storm was three to four inches of mucky slush. Anyway, I still maintain that complaining about the weather is dull. Thus, if any one good thing can come of this is that pasta, meatball, and cream sauce season just got extended by at least another weekend. After the excitement over Marcella Hazan last month, I wanted to share a recipe from her on the opposite end of the spectrum, sort of the Italian version of Italian American baked ziti. Except the ziti is rigatoni, which she insists holds up better to being cooked twice, plus has large hollows that nicely slurp up their surroundings. The red sauce is a white sauce, and the cheese is subtle, and oh, there are wee meatballs scattered everywhere. I loved her head notes on these meatballs, by the way, where she said it used to startle students to learn that meatballs and spaghetti were not an authentic Italian dish. Except conceptually, she says, meatballs are undoubtedly Italian. What is exclusive to this side of the Atlantic is those colossal ones. She should see the one the size of my baby's head, and if possible more delicious. I had a Gramercy Tavern a few weeks ago, packed with herbs and buried in tomato sauce. I worry that this is blasphemous. This is Marcella Hazan, after all. Surely any imperfections are user error, yes? But I have to admit that this dish wasn't all that I had hoped it would be. Maybe it's not the vet best version of itself. Maybe it needs to self-actualize. Oh, God, can I, you tell that I watched Oprah that day? Less passive-aggressively, I'd approach this differently next time, adjusted to my American excess-demanding excess tastes. More bechamel, more cheese, and more seasoning. More glue, more lushness. These are righteous causes, yes? Here is the recipe. Baked rigatoni with tiny meatballs, adapted no doubt blasphemously from Marcella Hazan. It serves eight, but I think Americans would, for this, would serve four to six. When I first realized that this baked ziti lacked a tomato sauce, I had my doubts. But then Alex said it would be like Italian mac and cheese. And then, predictably, it had my full attention. Although the original dish didn't yield anything so sauced and cheesy as the mac and cheese we know, I've upped the sauce, cheese, and seasoning for a baked pasta pasta that's more lush but surprisingly unheavy. This is still a subtle baked pasta. There's a lot of room for tweaking here. If you're certain you won't be happy without a veritable oozing of cheese, you could tear up some fresh mozzarella and toss it in with the dish before you baked it. If you cannot bring yourself to eat this unless it contains one form of vegetable matter, I imagine a bit of cooked spinach, steamed broccoli bits, or even easy cubes of roasted carrot and parsnip would work in here. So, for the meatballs, you're going to need one quarter cup milk, one slice of good white bread trimmed of its crust, one pound of ground pork, or beef, or lamb, or a mix of the three, one teaspoon of chopped garlic. Two tablespoons of chopped parsley, one-third cup of freshly grated Parmigiano-Reggiano Parmesan, uh, one egg, salt, black pepper in a grinder, one cup flour spread on a plate, and vegetable oil for frying. For the bechamel, you're going to need four and a half cups of milk, six tablespoons of butter, five tablespoons of flour, one-eighth teaspoon of grated nutmeg, one-half teaspoon salt, one-quarter teaspoon of ground black pepper, and then to finish, one pound of rigatoni, three-quarters of a cup of freshly grated Parmigiano-Reggiano, and one tablespoon of butter, and one-quarter cup milk. Bake the meatballs. You're going to heat the milk, but don't let it simmer. Tear pieces of the white bread into it and let it soak for five minutes before picking it up with your hand, squeezing it of excess milk, and putting it in a large mixing bowl. Add the pork, garlic, parsley, grated cheese, egg, salt and pepper. Combine all the ingredients with a fork until they are evenly mixed or amalgamated, as Hazan so charmingly says. Pinch off a small lump of meat about the size of a raspberry and roll the lump into a ball in the palm of your hands. Hazan says if you are good with your hands, you can try making three balls at a time. It turns out I'm not. When all the meatballs have been shaped, a process that took less time than I had expected just the same, roll them in the flour, 15 or 20 at a time. Place the floured meatballs in a strainer and shake it smartly to dispose of excess flour. Put enough vegetable oil in a skillet to rise one quarter inch up the sides of the pan and turn on the heat to medium high. When the oil is hot, put as many meatballs in the skillet as will fit without overcrowding and brown them until they form a nice crust all around. When one batch is done, transfer it with a slotted spoon to a platter covered with paper towels to drain and do the next batch until all are done. Then make the bechamel. Heat the milk over low heat in a saucepan until it forms a ring of pearly bubbles. but Do not let it break into a boil. In a larger saucepan, melt the butter over low heat Add the flour and stirring constantly with a wooden spoon or flat whisk until combined. Add two tablespoons of milk at a time to the flour and butter mixture, stirring steadily and thoroughly, then repeat through eight additions. At this point, you can add the milk in one-half cup increments, stirring constantly to keep it smooth. Add the salt, pepper, and nutmeg, and stir the sauce until it thickens. Assemble the dish. You're going to cook the rigatoni in a pot of well-salted water, drain when still al dente, and combine immediately in the bowl with two-thirds of the bechamel, half the grated cheese, and all of the meatballs. You're going to preheat the oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Heavily butter a 9 by 13 inch baking dish. The original recipe calls for a 12 inch springform, which I'm sure would be lovely, but it's not the commonest U.S. cake ban. Spread the rigatoni and meatball mixture in the pan, leveling it off with a spatula. Pour the milk over the dish and spread the rest of the bechamel on top and sprinkle with the remaining grated cheese. Place in the uppermost level of the preheated oven and bake for 15 to 20 minutes until a golden brown crust forms on top. Next, we've got a recipe for spinach and cheese strata. I've spent the last few months unearthing recipes I've had bookmarked for an eternity. A whole lot of them, mostly things I have spared you, did not exactly age like fine wine, as they say. Fillings ran, vegetables never caramelized, spiced mixed nuts were grimy, and cookies were painfully sweet. The rest of them, however, caused me to become consumed with regret when I think of all the times we could have already consumed mind-blowing butterscotch, caviar-esque cream mushrooms, and speedy-rich biscuits, but did not know of them yet. This is one of those times. As I mentioned yesterday, I'm all about hosting brunch, but only if I can make everything in advance. When it comes to biscuits, bacon, baked French toast and fruit salads... Pulling it off is obvious, but I always get lost on the eggs. And for a whole lot of people, it's not breakfast if it doesn't involve eggs. This strata, really, savory bread pudding, is the missing piece because not only can you make it the night before, you're supposed to. You can even, as we did this weekend, run out to pick up eggs and milk at the store, your bacon from the Polish meat market, coffee that someone else made for you and assemble it while waiting impatiently for the snowstorm to start. Then, once it really starts to come down, wrap it in plastic and chill it in the fridge while you go investigate the wonderland. And in the next morning when everything outside your kitchen window is blanketed white, wet, and icy, bake it up, stay inside, and watch Home Alone while eating the most effortlessly decadent eggs yet. So, here we go. Spinach and cheese strata. This is adapted from Gourmet from February of 2003. So, it's a oldie but a goodie. Serve six to eight. You're going to need one 10-ounce package of frozen spinach, thawed, squeeze all of the excess liquid, and chop. One and a half cups of finely chopped oven onion. That's one large. Three tablespoons of unsalted butter. One teaspoon salt. One half teaspoon of black pepper, one quarter teaspoon of freshly grated nutmeg, eight cups of cubed French, cubed French or Italian bread in one-inch cubes, uh, six ounces of coarsely grated Gruyere cheese (about two cups), two ounces of finely grated Parmesan (about one cup), two and three-quarters cup milk, nine large eggs, and two tablespoons of Dijon mustard. You're going to saute the onion in butter in a large heavy skillet over medium heat until soft, about five minutes, and then add one half teaspoon salt, one quarter teaspoon pepper, and nutmeg, and continue cooking for one minute. Stir in the spinach, remove from heat, and set aside. Spread one third of the bread cubes in a well buttered three quart gratin dish or other ceramic baking dish. And top with one-third of spinach mixture and one-third of each cheese. Repeat the layering twice with the remaining bread, spinach, and cheese. Then you're going to whisk the eggs, milk, mustard, and remaining one-half teaspoon salt and one-quarter teaspoon pepper together in a large bowl and pour evenly over the strata. Cover with plastic wrap and chill the strata for at least eight hours or up to a day. The next day, let it stand at room temperature for 30 minutes while preheating the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Bake your strata uncovered in the middle of the oven until puffed, golden brown, and cook through. It's going to take about 45 to 55 minutes, and then let stand 5 minutes before serving. We're going we're to end today with a Shiso Cool cocktail from Goop.com. Here's a tip. We recommend the Aloe Brand Aloe and Wheatgrass Juice. This serves one. You're going to need two fresh shiso leaves, two ounces of vodka, one ounce of aloe and wheatgrass juice, one half ounce of lemon juice, one half ounce of simple syrup, and one half ounce of green chartreuse. Um, This is grassy, herbal, and perfectly balanced. The shiso cocktail is our new favorite happy hour drink. You're going to fill a shaker with ice. Tear one of the shiso leaves in half and place in the shaker with all the liquids. You're going to shake and strain into a Collins glass filled with fresh ice and garnish with the remaining shiso leaf. And time for just one more. How about a cucumber vodka Collins? This makes one cocktail. You're going to need one cup of roughly diced cucumber, 12 mint leaves, a half a teaspoon of monk fruit, juice of... 1 half medium lemon, about 2 tablespoons, 1 ounces of Tito's Handmade Vodka, 1 sprig of mint to garnish, and 1 slice of cucumber to garnish. Tip, if you don't have monk fruit, use a little agave to sweeten. So our version of a boozy green juice, this refreshing cucumber cocktail also happens to be good for your skin. So first, you're going to muddle the cucumber, mint leaves, and monk fruit powder in a cocktail shaker until most of the juice has been released from the cucumber and the mint is fragrant. Second, you're going to add the lemon juice, vodka, and lots of ice. Next, shake for 30 seconds, then pour into a rocks glass with ice. You might need to shake it a few times as the cucumber pulp can clog up the cocktail strainer. Then you're going to garnish with a sprig of mint and a slice of cucumber. Enjoy, folks. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We invite you to please stay tuned for our next program. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.